This is Kutsianaki, and welcome to episode four of Down to the Struts. Today, we'll learn about how a sport designed exclusively for blind and visually impaired people can change the way we think about designing the places and spaces around us. We'll listen in on my conversation with Carla Gilbride and Justin Chan, co-founders of the Metro Washington Association of Blind Athletes, affectionately known as MWABA. I am honored and privileged to sit on the board of this fantastic organization. I hope you enjoy this journey into the world of adaptive sports and their power to transform lives. Okay, let's get down to it. So thank you, Carla and Justin, for joining me on Down to the Struts to talk about one of my favorite topics. Um, I personally am a horrible goalball player, as Carla is evidence uh, has witnessed, uh, but uh, not true. I disagree. <laughs> Um, but I love, uh, I love the content of the sport and, uh, I'm excited that you guys are here to, to share all your wisdom about it. Um, so first, can we start off, uh, with having the, each of you introduce yourselves and talk about how you got into sports and how you got into goalball in particular? Sure. I can start. So I grew up on Long Island in New York and I did a fair amount of sports and recreational things when I was in high school. My parents got me into a horseback riding program as a little kid and took me skiing when we went out to Colorado to visit relatives there, which I absolutely fell in love with. And then in high school, I was on the track and cross country teams. But all of those things are fairly like individual sports. You know, you're sort of competing against yourself and trying to improve your time. And there's camaraderie with other people. And I definitely enjoyed that, you know, being part of the team and, and going on runs with my classmates. But I didn't have the experience of doing a team sport, certainly not a team sport with other blind people, until after graduating from law school in D.C. I moved out west and I lived in Berkeley for a while. And there's a group out there called BORP, which stands for Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program. And they have a bunch of adaptive sports, including adaptive cycling and wheelchair basketball. And one of the sports that they have is goalball. So that was where I experienced goalball for the first time. So I was in my mid-20s and, you know, there was kind of a recreational team. They met once a week and played a couple games and then went out for pizza and beer afterwards. And that's where I really fell in love with the sport. Thanks, Carla. And you were the first person to introduce me to the concept of adaptive sports. I remember very vividly having drinks with you kind of shortly, like a, about a year into when I moved to DC and you were trying to recruit me to your tandem cycling group, which is probably an episode for another day. But um, but I had never thought about the concept of, of doing a sport in an adaptive way until I met you. So I was uh, really excited to be introduced to all those activities through getting to know you. Justin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into sports and goalball? I grew up in Florida and uh, went to the school for the deaf and the blind. And that's kind of how I was introduced to sports. Goalball, track and field, some judo took place there. But that's, that's really where I, I got my start in sports. I mean, I've always been a competitive person, whether it's like school or, or sports or just anything really. 
if you say I can't do something or you can do something better than me, I'm going to try to prove you wrong. So that's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of naturally fell into my lap. But I also attended a lot of sports camps. They have camps like they call camp abilities, and they also do different sports there, like goalball and cycling, swimming, for example, which I'm terrible at. But at some point, someone said, hey, did you ever consider joining the Paralympics for swimming? And I said, absolutely not. But <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's pretty much how I got my start in sports. I kind of grew up with it. That's so cool. Campability. I, the name alone is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had heard of that when I was growing up and I, and I totally identify with the, with the competitive spirit. So Carla, can you tell us a little bit about how and where goalball got started? I, you've shared a little bit of that history with me in the past, and I just think it's such a fascinating story. Goalball is unique. As far as I am aware, it's the only sport that was designed from the beginning as in a sport to be played by people with disabilities. It's not an adaptation of an existing sport. Like, you know, let's take the game of hockey and modify it to be played by people in wheelchairs or people who are blind or, you know, same thing with basketball. It's this, it's a brand new sport that was invented by blind people and specifically by veterans in Germany and Austria after World War II. So the game was invented in 1946, and it was part of the you know, rehabilitation of the soldiers who had just recently lost their vision and were trying to learn how to move around in the world um, as newly blind people. So one of the things they were trying to do was you know, develop their ear-hand coordination and like learn how to hear things in motion and kind of track things by sound. So that's one of the elements of the game, as Justin will, will talk about, is that um, being able to use your hearing and, and locating um, the ball as it's moving based on sound is really important. So that is how goalball kind of got its start. And then over the next couple of decades, it was played, you know, more and more competitively by more and more people. And Justin mentioned earlier, the Paralympic Games, which is the equivalent of the Olympics for people with physical disabilities. So goalball was first played as a demonstration sport in the 1972 Summer Paralympic Games. And then it became an official medal sport, you know, where people can compete for medals for men in 1976 in the Toronto Games and became a women's Paralympic sport in 1982, I believe, and has been played in the Paralympics ever since. There's now 81 nations who have competitive goalball teams as of 2017, according to an article that I just read. So it's played all over the world at the elite level, as well as, you know, in these sort of more recreational leagues, you know, that, that local communities have going. That's really, really interesting. And I think it's interesting how it was both designed as a way for people who are sort of newly blind to continue or to participate in a sporting event, but also had this like sort of rehabilitative purpose. So do veterans still play goalball? Is it still used for that sort of therapeutic purpose today? Um, you know? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have have played the game with veterans. And I know that the VA here in the US has an active program where they're working with the uh, US Association of Blind Athletes to introduce veterans to of, of all ages, both people who, you know, recently lost their vision, uh, older veterans, you know, to, to the game of goalball. And the last several national championships here in the U.S. have included a, a team that's made up entirely of veterans. So it's definitely still, I can't talk about 
you know, other countries as much because I'm not familiar, but here in the U.S. there's definitely an emphasis on introducing the sport to veterans. That's so interesting. And that's really cool that it continues to serve that purpose in addition to being now a kind of competitive sport. So Justin, the million dollar question, how is the game actually played? Can you tell us a little bit about what a goalball game is like? As, uh, as Carla said, the sport was designed specifically for the blind and it leverages their hearing and communication skills with each other. So the sport is played between two teams comprised of up to six people. Three people are on the court at one time, two people on wing positions, which are the side positions, and then one person in the middle, uh, which is the center position. The court is laid out with tactile lines with wires or string tape on the ground. And depending on the different lengths and directions of the lines, they use it for spatial awareness and also just for positioning. And so the ball is also played with a, a ball with bells inside so that the players can hear it and all the players are uh, blindfolded. So the players can hear the ball and what they do is they roll it to each other, almost kind of like a bowling style motion. And some people do fancy things like spin and and what have you. And the ball can move pretty fast. In recent days, players have even started developing a kind of a bounce throw so that the ball is actually hitting you at weird angles and on the top of your body and things like that. So to defend the ball, uh, the players kind of lay on their side to create a wall. So imagine like the game of Pong where there's a little slider at the bottom trying to prevent the ball from hitting their goal. That's essentially what the players are, except three little paddles instead of just one. Additional rules, basically, the ball has to hit uh, on certain spots of the court so that it's the bell rings and it's not just flying through the air and, you know, the, other, the opposing team has a fair shot at hearing it. You can pass to your teammates. Yeah, you can pass to your teammates. It, it evolves every, every year as the game kind of grows and players develop different skills so it's also a fast-paced game which people don't necessarily realize so there's a shot clock when you have possession of the ball you only have 10 seconds for it to get rid of it and to reach the midpoint of the court so any passing that you're going to do any moving around to set up your shot you know all has to be done within that 10 second clock are there any other rules like for the audience, for example, because I'm at, how does everyone in all the noise, like how do you track and hear the ball if, if you're relying on the bell? Right. So the referees actually before every, before the ball goes into play, every time before they blow the whistle, they ask the audience to quiet, please. And then they blow the whistle and the ball goes, goes into play. So they, they remind the audience consistently to uh, keep the noise down, preferably complete silence. I imagine if I was watching the two of you on a play goalball, I would want to be cheering the whole time. So that's that seems hard to contain yourself when you're excited <laughs> about like someone winning. <laughs> um, the most difficult time to comply with that rule is when the ball crosses the goal line. And again, as Justin was saying, all of the important lines on the court are are marked down with tape. Mm-hmm. And so as a blind spectator, if you're listening to the game, you can sometimes hear the ball cross that tape and hit the back of the net. Maybe it's right on the line. So until the referee blows the whistle and indicates goal, you're supposed to keep quiet and not start cheering. But that's very hard, especially if it's an exciting game. And, you know, that's like the game winning point that gets scored. It's kind of amazing to see people like jumping up and down silently, trying not to yell, you know, until they're allowed to make noise. 
or that's... sometimes it hits the goal. Sometimes the ball would hit the goal and but not go in, or it would hit the top bar and go over. And people are cheering, you know, because they thought it scored. So yeah, that's definitely hard. I can imagine. I, I'm a very rowdy spectator. See, Justin, you talked about, you know, the lying on your side and blocking the ball. I remember when I played the uh, during Blind Sports Day, the one time I played at the rec center with you all, it's sort of terrifying in a way because the ball is as Justin described it, it's quite it's, I guess it's bigger than a basketball and it it's kind of heavy and it's coming at you so what is that it what is that experience and what skills do you need to have to kind of effectively block the ball um, I would say that it definitely takes time to get used to tracking the ball with just your ears and um, positioning your body the right way for example, uh, if you're leaning backwards, you're basically just the ramp and the ball is just going to go over. And if you're leaning too far forwards, it's kind of just like you're just a speed bump. So there's like a happy <laughs> medium of, you know, you, you have to lay down almost kind of like leaning in, but not completely. It takes time to get used to body positioning, but definitely tracking the ball with your ears is something that a lot of people need time to get used to as well. But the key thing is really communication with your teammates because you can do a lot. Um, you can cut off a lot of angles and you can tell somebody like that they need to cover a certain amount of space just by communicating to your teammates. So that I, I would say that communication is key in that respect. A lot of geometry and physics um, to, mm. to the game of goalball because the width of the court that you're defending, it's 30 feet across. So unless you have three 10 foot tall people, there's going to be a little bit of a gap between the three players, but mm -hmm. you can position yourselves as Justin was saying in such a way that the person on the other side either has to make the perfect shot right down the line to get in between where the people's bodies are positioned, or it's, you know, just going to be very difficult for them to get the right angle to get it in the goal. When I first started playing, gosh, like more than, 10 years ago now, I guess, or around 10 years ago now, you know, it was fairly unsophisticated. We would just kind of all lay down on our sides. You know, so usually the person in the center is a little bit in front of the people on the wings so that you don't, it makes almost a triangle and you're less likely to collide with each other. And as I started playing more and playing with different people, I learned a lot more of these sophisticated angles of, of uh, how people can position their bodies to be more effective with the defense. Well, I imagine you need a lot of sort of isometric strength, right? Because you're holding yourself up in these sort of positions. You must be sore afterwards. It's a lot of core strength, especially you were talking about the ball comes at you hard, which is true. And especially like as these bounce shots have gotten more common, it, it can take these tricky hops over you. That means to defend it more, you know, have a better chance of defending it. You have to, you want to hit it in between its bounces so that you're getting it before it hops over you. So that's also ear training and kind of training, you know, your, your sense of timing and then yeah, being able to move it kind of explosively when the, when the moment is right. So yeah, it's a workout. It's a full body workout and you're crouching and then you're popping back up to throw and you're getting back down yeah. on the ground and you're popping back up. So, you know, you're, it's you're like definitely doing sore squats the next day. for an hour. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds 
rough. <laughs> you guys are tough. I wanted to go back to something you were saying earlier, Justin, because I think it's really interesting. So you mentioned the communication piece that a lot of the game, so Carla mentioned the strength and sort of the agility, and then it's also about communicating with your teammates. So, so how does that happen? Do you guys do a lot of, does the team do a lot of planning ahead of time in terms of how does communication happen both before and during a game and like during practice? Well, so some of it happens before the game. For example, like you come up with a game plan. You say, hey, if I tell you to do this, this, uh, you know, this is what I want. Like, I want you to move to the left or something. And then also just in the game, for example, if you're passing to your teammates, you just call their name and they respond. That way, you know where to, to, to pass the ball. But then also a lot of communication is telling your players where the ball is or what, you, what you're observing on the other end. So, for example, a lot of players will move around on the court. So they'll start from the left side, move to the right side and throw it over there. And if one player hears it, they should uh, they usually tell their other teammates so that everybody can can read the ball better and better position themselves to make a defending play. And then with that respect, that player who was moving from left to right is also probably communicating with his players so that he's not running over them. Uh, so there's there's a lot of communication on both sides of the ball, really. And sometimes it's talking. It's, you know, it's on the right, it's on the left, but sometimes it's tapping. You know, people will, Justin mentioned avoiding collisions. If someone is moving across the court, their center player, who's the person they're most likely to collide with, will like make some noise, <laughs> tap the ground. So it's like, oh, that's where that person is. Okay, I know I can avoid them. Um, so sometimes it's very subtle things like that. The other thing that is important is if on the the defensive side of the ball, if it's loose, you know, letting people know where the ball is because you have that 10 seconds to get control of it and throw it. So people are often saying, you know, it's loose or it's forward or, and then also counting down the 10 seconds. Usually there's one person who's responsible for kind of having a clock in their head. And then they'll say, you know, you have six seconds left, you have five seconds left, get rid of it. Um, And those are the sorts of in-game communications that people will do. That's really cool. And I'm sure after a while, you would all develop kind of a language with each other, especially if it's a team you're playing with it regularly. So much of what you're just describing about the goalball court and the game being inside of the game itself, it it feels to me as someone, as a blind person being in this world for a little while, for an hour or so, that's totally designed for your use and has been created for you to participate. So Carla, I'm curious if you could share a little bit about things about the goalball court that you wish there was more of in the world, that (laughs) things about the way the goalball court is designed that actually could make life easier outside of it. Yeah, um, that's a great question. So one of the things is the tactile lines that we were talking about. Um, You can definitely feel those with your hands when you're on the ground and you're you know, crouching down to uh, defend your position, but you can also feel them with your feet. And so a lot of times people, if they're standing up to throw to see kind of where they are in, in space, they will just scuff their toe or their foot along the ground and you can pick up that tactile marker of the, of the string that's taped down. And I would love for there to be more of those kind of just subtle bumps, but bumped up tactile lines. There are some, I mean, definitely the truncated domes on the edges of subway platforms is one example. 
of a tactile feature that you could feel with your foot or with your cane to indicate, you know, oh, this is the edge of the platform or similarly, like this is the crosswalk. You'll see those at a lot of intersections. But I have heard, and I haven't really experienced this, but I've heard that there are places where those sorts of either truncated domes or maybe just uh, something that's a little bit lower profile, more like the taped down string on a goalball court is used to just indicate a path, like a, on a hiking path or something, where if it curves to the left or the path is, is veering off, you can follow this sort of tactile uh, marking with your foot to indicate, you know, which way the path is going. And I think there could definitely be more use of that outside of goalball in just the built environment. The other thing that, you know, talking about following sound cues, I have just noticed, and I don't know if this was probably after I, I got into playing goalball. And so I had gotten in the habit of, you know, tr tracing moving sound is that if I'm in an airport, let's say, or somewhere where um, I'm not familiar, I haven't been there before. And so I may not know the route already. I don't have to be holding on to somebody. And sometimes, you know, especially right now when people are trying to keep social distance, it's, it's better if you can follow someone without holding on to them. And sometimes if that person has like keys in their pocket that are jingling or sort of scuffier shoes, not rubber soled shoes, but shoes that make more sound as they're walking, um, I can just follow their footsteps or their, the noise that they're making and kind of track that sound the same way you would track the ball in a goal ball game. So I think that's another kind of handy strategy that I've picked up and that I think there are probably more ways that that, that could be used like deliberately to make, you know, other aspects of life more accessible. I just recently, I was talking with a friend who's a blind parent and she wants her child to be able to play freely on the playground without her being like hovering helicopter mom. And so she tied a bell to her kid's mm -hmm. shoe so she could track. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a, and it's also, especially now when we live in a kind of this post-pandemic world where it's not as sort of safe or acceptable to get really close and touch someone, using sound as a tracker can be really important when you need to keep distance from someone, but mm -hmm. you still need them to guide you. No, yeah, need to know where yeah. they are. Yeah, kids is a great example. There's actually a goalball player who Justin and I both know that had, um, I mean, still has a kid, but he's older now, but had a, like a toddler and we would actually hear the toddler running around with his like squeaky shoes <laughs> at global <laughs> tournaments. So All right. <laughs> case in point. <laughs> yeah, it helps. Um, it's, it's amazing. I think oftentimes in the site, in the sort of sighted world, I feel like people don't quite always remember the power of sound and how sound can be used effectively in all sorts of situations and even by sighted people themselves you know mm -hmm. I think it can be beneficial like say for example your eyes need to be somewhere else but you want to hear whatever is going on elsewhere you know you can kind of use both your senses um at the same time but yeah I think that's I think it's really cool and that's why I was saying I feel like as you two were kind of painting the picture of what a global court is like I was thinking to myself this is the world I want to live in all the time <laughs> so which I think is part of the and like different textures I mean this isn't so much the case in goalball but it occurs to me that another way that things could be communicated is like smooth means like rough means this and like bumps mean that you know just that's kind of a, a code and you could use tactile surfaces to communicate meaning the same way that you would use like color-coded signs to communicate meaning there's like a certain type of bumpiness you know that means the trail curves to the right or whatever you know yeah I've used that 
you know, not, not so much that it was designed to communicate information, but I kind of figured it out. So Carla, I know, and I think maybe you as well, Justin, I've spent a fair amount of time in Penn Station in New York City, and I would often figure out my way around because the texture of the floor underneath my feet would change depending on where I was in the station. I don't know mm-hmm. if you ever picked up on this, but um, so that would help me signal, okay, now I'm in the area where the platforms are, the stairs to the platforms are mm-hmm. because the ground texture has changed. So that is very helpful information. I think there's so many ways that we can communicate that are either nonverbal or non-visual that often we don't think about, or yeah. people who don't rely on them think about on a regular basis. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree. There are all sorts of ways in which non- visual information can be used. And I know that there's a blind architect named Chris Downey, who I used to know when I lived out in the Bay Area. He designed some of the buildings and maybe some of the trails as well at a camp for that's used for multiple, you know, sessions, both for blind kids and blind adults use this area out in the wine country, kind of in the Napa Valley area in California called Enchanted Hills Camp. And I know that he kind of designed the space with the blind users in mind. So I've always wanted to go back. This was after I had moved back east. So I haven't gotten to see the stuff that he built, but I'm interested to see kind of how those features were texture and other things were kind of built in to the space there. Because I imagine all sorts of cool things that you could do if you thought about it more intentionally. Yeah, and I think that's a really good testament to why it's important for people who experience the world in different ways to be in those professions like architecture or engineering, because they're thinking about design elements that probably someone who doesn't have that experience wouldn't think of otherwise. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, My other Berkeley experience or Bay Area experience like that is there's um, a building called the Ed Roberts Campus. It's right across the street from the Ashby BART station. And it was named after Ed Roberts, who's a champion of the disability rights movement and independent living movement. And most of the organizations that have their offices there are disability organizations that are made up of and advocate for people with disabilities. Uh, There's all sorts of interesting design features in that building, but one that uh, was very striking to me is that there are no stairs in the building, but there's a central ramp that gets you from the first to the second floor and it spirals around. um, And it's just kind of like this design, like focal point of the building. When you walk in, there's like this big sweeping ramp that you take to get where you're going in the building and, and just really kind of I don't know, it makes a statement and it's also functional at the same time. And sounds cool looking too. <laughs> yeah, it's very neat. It's very, you know, it's very like modern. Yeah, it's, it's like a early uh, 21st century building. I think it went up when I was living out there probably around like 2009, 2010. So it definitely had this kind of sleek modern design. That's really cool. So Taking it back to Goldval for a second, now we had a nice, awesome detour into architecture, which I think is, is so interesting and, and has so many parallels with the way that Goldball was designed originally. Could you guys talk a little bit about how, you know, I know a little bit of the story of how you two connected, and I'd love to learn more about how you started the Goldball league here in DC and and how that transformed into other things, including the Metro Washington Association of Blind Athletes. Sure, I can start. So I actually moved uh, back to DC from the Bay Area in 2011. And for the first few years that I was here, I had thought about wanting to 
continue playing goalball. It actually did continue, actually would go up to Philadelphia where there was a goalball program. So about a two hour Amtrak trip to go up to Philly to play with the goalball team up there, which shows how addicted I had gotten <laughs> to the sport and I wanted to keep playing. You know, I didn't have the same community of being able to sort of play every week and, and hang out afterward that I had gotten used to when I was at West and also just felt that there are so many blind people in the DC area it would really, there should be a program in DC and there should be that opportunity for lots of people to get involved and experience the sport. So I was kind of poking around and trying to figure out if anyone wanted to partner with me on developing a program. And then luckily Justin moved into the area. Where were you coming from, Justin, Alabama? I was actually coming from Alabama in 2014. I was kind of on the same search, uh, poking around, seeing how I could play goalball again and get involved. And I was really surprised that I, you know, there were no existing programs in DC, given that the volume of blind people we have in this area. I went to good old Facebook and <laughs> uh, asked one of the forums, you know, hey, how do I find people to play goalball with or what's the closest thing in, in what to Washington, DC? And someone mentioned get a hold of Carla. So that's pretty much how we got to know each other. I, I reached out to her. Uh, we met up and started talking about plans to get goalball started here. Uh, for a while, I also went to Philadelphia with Carla um, and practiced with guys there. We found a, a venue finally that was willing to host a clinic. So it was, right. we didn't have like a standing practice there, but it was a, it was a one-time clinic it was at uh, Trinity University in Brookland, the Brookland area of Northeast DC. And we put the word out on a bunch of, you know, listservs of like the local blindness groups and put it out on Facebook. We had about 40 wow. people come out on our clinic day. And that really showed, you know, us how much demand or, you know, desire and, and um, appetite there was, you know, in the community for this kind of a program. Eventually that year formed what's now called the Metro Washington Association of Blind Athletes, or MWABA, um, affectionately. And uh, our website is goemwaba.org. Goalball was really the first like standing program that we had through MWABA. Uh, we eventually got more permanent gym space for a while. We were at the Jewish Community Center over in DuPont. And then a couple years after that, we wound up with a space through uh, Department of Parks and Rec in D.C., at the Columbia Heights Rec Center. And that became kind of our goalball home um, for the last few years, then kind of expanded from there into some other things. Like we had yoga classes a couple of times a month. A lot of our members were doing judo, a couple of different uh, dojos around the area. And then, as you mentioned, Kitsia, three yeah. years ago, we started the tandem cycling program um, and we have tandem bike lockers around DC. So altogether, I think we've got about eight or nine tandem bikes that either we bought or many people generously donated to us. And so through having those bikes, we're able to uh, organize rides for either group rides or during the pandemic, it's been more individual rides with just, you know, one blind person with a, a sighted captain getting out and biking around the area. That's really cool. So I'm, for that first goalball clinic, so you mentioned 40 or 50 people showed up. So was that, were those 40 and 50 people, all of them sort of seasoned goalball players who were looking for a team? Or did you also get people who had barely heard of it or didn't, or just showed up out of curiosity? 
Uh, yeah, we, we definitely got all sorts of different folks, people who have never played sports before in their lives, um, people who are, uh, recently lost their vision or are were losing their vision, and uh, people of different ages too. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we, had, we had kids that were 14, 15. We also had adults that were, I don't know, upwards of 50 plus mm-hmm. or, or, or middle-aged folks. You know, it was kind of all across the board, which was nice because then we, we broke those people up into groups and they got to work together and kind of had like a little mini tournament after we taught them the basics and the foundations of the game. Yeah, I think that's really neat. And and for the two of you who seem you have been involved in sports, adaptive sports, you know, since young childhood or early adulthood, but you know, as someone for someone like myself, I lost vision, a dramatic amount of vision kind of later in life. For in my teenage years, I was, you know, doing non-adaptive sports, I guess in a sense, you know, trying to adjust to whatever the mainstream sporting communities I was in. So I played field hockey briefly. I ran track and it never occurred to me to have a running guide or to ride mm-hmm. a tandem bike. When I couldn't ride a single bike anymore, I thought to myself, okay, I guess I'm done with cycling for the rest of my mm-hmm. life because I can't do it solo. So I think sports have really incredible power to show you what you are still capable of, particularly for someone who's lost the ability to do something over time, whether that's walking or seeing or hearing or what have you. So I think that's why I was curious about it and so fascinated that so many people who were sort of newly had lost their vision or had no experience with sports showed up. And I'm curious if you've followed any of those people over time and and what you've seen in terms of their development or how the act of participating in these sporting activities has impacted other aspects of their lives. Some of our members who came out to that first event not obviously not everyone who came out to that first event stayed involved and became big goalball players but but some of them did and became a big part of their lives I've heard from folks of of all ages that especially if you're losing your vision and you're you're just seeing all the things that you can't do anymore you know like oh I can't do that you know it, it can be very depressing um, and difficult adjustment. And so having goalball and not only the sport itself, but also the community of people and kind of being introduced to the community of other blind people who are of all ages and doing all sorts of different things with their lives, kind of have already made that adjustment that you might be in an earlier stage of going through, that that was a really important community to become a part of, you know, just to sort of see a little bit of that, of that future of like, oh, I I can see myself fitting into this and having these new possibilities open up to me. It's not just doors that are closing. It's also doors that are opening. And that's actually been one of the coolest things for me about starting in WABA is like having those conversations with people and seeing that we've like created a kind of made a, a place available for people to, to get introduced to that and to become part of, you know, a new community and get introduced to some some new sports and new things that they can do. Yeah, another big thing that I've heard from some of our members is uh, it's been definitely a uh, a big confidence builder. It's given them the sense that like any other athlete, if they work hard at something, they can get better at it, they can become competitive, and that there are opportunities out there regardless of whether or not they're blind or losing their vision or what have you. 
Yeah. And I think the competitiveness not, is not for everybody, obviously. Some people just want to, you know, hang out with their friends and have fun. And, and the nice thing about goalball is that that opportunity is there. But I think for some folks who are maybe more like Justin said, he's super competitive. I think seeing that the sport is played at an elite level for people who may have, whether they were blind their whole lives or, or not, I think one of the things that people are, are sometimes surprised by when they see goalball played at a high level is like, oh, like, this is hard. Like that ball's moving fast. You have to, you know, like people kind of think like, Oh, cause it's blind people. It's just kind of this cute thing that you do. And it's, it's <laughs> maybe not, not as strenuous. So I think sometimes when, when people realize that there are higher levels you can aspire to compete at and that then the expectations are there that, that blind people can compete at that high level, that's really exciting to folks who want that, you know, and to know that like people have higher expectations of us. Um, and that can kind of contradict some more negative stereotypes or assumptions that are out there in society, that there's kind of a limit to what you can accomplish in general or, or specifically in terms of physical activity as a person with a disability. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think it, it's great to know. It, it feels less like this is a second class citizen sport. Because, you know, that's not true. It's played at a Paralympic, the highest level of athleticism that you could be at. And it's competitive and fierce and hard, frankly, as someone who has tried it themselves and found it really, really challenging. Um, going back to your point about uh, Justin's point earlier, just about pushing yourself. I certainly felt that way when I first started Tano. I remember talking about it with you, Carla, that day over drinks and thinking, oh, there's no way I can ride a bike. You know, I hadn't been on a bike in 15 years and that had been a single bike and I couldn't even fathom the thought. And, you know, I got on the bike and turned out it was like riding a bike and I, I really enjoyed it. And I remember feeling so accomplished that first day when we rode, like, what was it, like eight miles or something? <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was so great and went on to do many, many miles of riding, some of it with you. And it's, it's important to kind of confront your fears and, and mm -hmm. you don't realize what you're capable of until you actually push yourself to do it. So I think there's a lot of value in that as well, um, as, just, as Justin was saying. So what are, what are your favorite, for, for each of you, what are your favorite aspects? of goalball what do you like that you've said so many things about it but I'm curious about what what's your favorite aspect of either the game or the experience of the process so for me the my favorite parts of goalball is again the competitiveness also just the camaraderie uh, that you build with your teammates and even other people in the league and then also just getting to know new people seeing new places because since goalball is played nationally and it's it's not like a a mainstream sport you sometimes have to travel to different parts of the country to play it against other people those are the different types of things it, it allows you to it's allowed me over my years of playing to become more independent and um, experience things that I may or may not have experienced just staying in, in my hometown how about you Carla I there are dynamics of, of being in a team, like the camaraderie just with, with friends is part of it, but just within the, the game itself, the dynamics of figuring out how your team works well and what each player needs to succeed um, and how to help you know maximize each person's potential. I guess kind of partially as a player, partially as a coach, which as I've gotten older, I've transitioned into being more of a coach. Um, I really enjoy that. And I think it has definite applications outside of the, outside of the sport just to being a good sort of 
play or in other sorts of teams professionally. And, and so I really enjoyed that aspect. And I feel like I've grown a lot from doing it um, over the last few years. Yeah, I remember you telling me once that organizing a goalball tournament was a really helpful exercise because you use some of the things you learned from that process and organizing other types of events and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Like it's project management, man. Like we've run a tournament in DC, I think three years now and figuring out like the venue and the hotel and the, the food. food and yeah, how much do we charge people, you know, things like that. So um, we are athlete led more so than many, you know, many groups that put on global tournaments have been around a lot longer than we have. And so I think it's, it's neat that we can kind of do the organizing of it as well. And not that we're doing it. We have volunteers who help out in all sorts of ways, but that it's really led by, you know, me and Justin and other people on our board who are, are mostly, you know, uh, goalball athletes themselves. And I think that's kind of a cool, nothing about us without us kind of a thing that we're able to show the community that, that we can not just play the sport, but also do all the behind the scenes stuff too. To, to piggyback off of uh, what Carla just said, it's also given us the opportunity to kind of um, get the community involved and kind of educate them on what blind people can do. We partnered with different sororities in the area, different programs like the master's program in physiology at Georgetown. We regularly get volunteers from these different organizations, and a lot of them have never met a blind person or interacted with a blind person. And then, you know, this gives them an opportunity to grow individually and also experience different things or a a different kind of sport or Mm -hmm. a different way of looking at a competition or what have you. Yeah, I've definitely worked with, you know, other sighted athletes, both in the context of running and cycling. And I think it's, it's really a two-way street in terms of education. And then the community grows and, and there's more opportunity for partnership. And, you know, so I, I totally resonate with what you're saying, Justin, about being open and, and having these volunteers come in and know nothing about blindness or the blind experience and, and being educated and also having fun and, and making new friends. I think there's a lot of, a lot of value to that. I would say the, the, uh, the most interesting volunteer we've ever had was a random Uber driver who was <laughs> driving our, one of our volunteers to practice. <laughs> And he decided to stay and check it out. And then he and continued he to come back. back. <laughs> I forgot about him. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So, I mean, it just, it just shows how much of an impact you can have on any given person at any given point in time. Yeah. And it also comes with the opportunity for blind people to be out there in the world and do things. You know, if that global athlete wasn't traveling to that global practice, that Uber driver would never have had that experience. So yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a, there's an inherent value to disabled people of all sorts uh, being out in the world and contributing in the same way as anybody else, really. I feel like I'm a goalball ambassador whenever, especially whenever (laughs) I'm going to a goalball tournament and someone at, I'm at an airport or I'm at, you know, on the train and someone asks me what it is, I'm always telling people, you know, go to YouTube, check it out. (laughs) It is really a fun sport. And a lot of people don't know about it. And then when they do, I actually had somebody who I met on the Amtrak train, we were going to the tournament um, outside Philadelphia. And she said, Oh, I live near there, I'm going to check it out. And then in the middle of the tournament, I come out the court from playing a game. 
And I, you know, walked into the hallway and this woman was like, Hey, I was the person on your train. <laughs> I came and checked it out. <laughs> oh man. That's so great. It, I, yeah. Those sorts of things happen in the most unexpected and <laughs> expected places. So I wanted to close by asking you guys, if you could share, you know, what advice would you have for a, a blind person or someone with a, another type of disability who wants to you know, get into sports or goalball in particular, or just sports in general? I would say that the best advice I could give a person just looking to get involved in anything, uh, sports or learning new things in general, is just don't be afraid to ask. Even though there's nothing, no ready resource currently, there's always someone who's willing to help and possibly even have the same interests as you. It's always good to ask, and the worst thing that can happen is you start a whole new organization and <laughs> get a bunch of people together. The internet is definitely a tool. Google around, see if something exists in your community already. And if it doesn't, then yeah, find a friend, <laughs> see if you can put something together. A resource if, you know, there are several nationwide organizations like Disabled Sports USA and they run different camps. Sometimes there are uh, scholarships to attend the camp if, you know, finances are a barrier for blind athletes. The United States Association of Blind Athletes, uh, USABA, is another clearinghouse. They'll, they'll have a list of some of the local groups like ours around the country that you can get plugged into. Um, and this is, you know, sounds cheesy, but it might be scary at first to try something you've never done before, but I have never regretted anything that I did that I was initially afraid to do. The only regrets that I have are things where I had an opportunity and I didn't do it. And then I'm like, man, I wish I had tried that. So be willing to step outside of your comfort zone and maybe try something that, that sounds hard or that sounds weird or that you just don't know what it's going to feel like um, because you might turn out to love it. Like I turned out to love goalball when I tried it for the first time as a 25 year old. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I think those are all really, really helpful pieces of advice and things that I have had to talk myself into many a time myself. So I, I'm sure many people who are listening can relate to that. And uh, we'll share the the links to those organizations in the show notes, as well as to uh, gomwaba.org so that folks are in the DC area can check out our activities and get plugged in. Um, we're on a little bit of a hiatus right now with the pandemic and trying to see how we can do things safely, but hopefully soon we'll, we'll all be back on the goalball court and on the tandem bikes and back in our community uh, doing things together. But so I just want to thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast. And this has been such a fun conversation. And I personally learned a lot about goalball that I didn't know before. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to episode four of Down to the Struts. On Thursday, people across the United States will celebrate Thanksgiving. I wanted to take this moment to thank each and every one of you for listening, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing Down to the Struts. I hope this podcast is an opportunity to create community, learn about our differences, and uncover the unexpected commonalities that bring us together as human beings, despite the things that may seem to divide us. 
This podcast would also not be possible without the energy and creativity of Anna Wu, Adrian Kong, Ilana Nevins, Avery Annapol, and Claire Shanley. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for episode five coming to your feeds on December 8th so we can get back down to it.